evening and welcome to Night Callers Bigfoot Radio. You're here with your hostess, Lauren Smith, and I'm happy to have you all here tonight. Um, tonight we have Dennis Stone on. He is the president of America Stonehenge, which I'm very excited to learn a lot about tonight. Um, but before we get into that, I thought that I would ask you to please show some love for the hardworking Nightcallers team and hit that thumbs up on whatever platform you're using to listen to the show. And also, don't forget to subscribe and ring that notification bell for updates on new shows and content. Um, you know, you can also go to www.nightcallersproductions.com. I am working on new stuff all the time. I put out new content every single week for you guys. And I have a lot of great things coming that I don't want y'all to miss. So go to nightcallersproductions.com, check it out. Um, I have extra content for my members. And so my members are... Uh, through buymeacoffee.com backslash nightcallers. And through there, you can become a member and get access to extra night terrors, um, extra interviews that you can't see on the normal feed. So basically with that membership, you get an interview every week rather than every other week, plus an extra night terrors and lots of other exclusive information and content and a free sticker because, you know, you can't beat that. So um, I wanted to shout out real quick. This weekend is the Falk Monster Campout 2021. And we will be in Falk, Arkansas at Smith Park. We're going to be having a great time. So if you're uh, nearby, come on out, check it out. So without further ado, I'm going to go ahead and bring on uh, Mr. Dennis Stone, the president of America's Stonehenge. All right. How are you doing tonight, Dennis? Oh, good. Thank you, Lauren, for having me on. Oh, yeah. No, I'm honored to have you here. I, you know, I read your bio and I know you've been on a few other very prominent shows, um, America's Unearthed and stuff like that. So, you know, I really am honored to have you here. Well, it's a pleasure to be on with you tonight. Thank you so much for having me. Of course. Okay. So you're the president of America's Stonehenge. Um, what, what is that exactly? Well, America Stonehenge is a little bit hard to describe, but it's a um, it's a uh, it's about a 110 acre hill with all these stone ruins on top, mm -hmm. and these stone ruins have been there we believe for about 4,000 years. We think it's a, a complex of uh, stones that align with the sun, moon, and stars, so it's an astronomical site. It has stone structures that might uh, might have been used for different purposes, including burial, perhaps. So I don't think it's a living site like the Fred Flintstone, you know, there are times, it looks like that actually. Look at some of the structures, they're sort of reminiscent of that. Mm -hmm. But we don't think it's a place of living. We think it's a place of worship, a place of, a place of observation, perhaps burial and ceremonial. But it's one of about 800 sites in the Northeast, including all of New England, uh, New York, Pennsylvania, and Pennsylvania, um, sorry, Delaware. It actually now we're finding out some of these same type of stone features go right across the nation. So really? my dad got involved with this back in 1955. They knew of about 15 different sites across the Northeast. And again, since that time, we found hundreds of these sites. So it's not totally unique, but we don't believe it's colonial or post-colonial. We think it was built again around 4,000 years ago, plus or minus, you know, and it might've been a, a layering of cultures but the stone structures, you can walk inside of them. They have big stone roofs, big gigantic slabs of stone that were used for the construction of these of these structures. Mm -hmm. And uh, there's a couple of really unique uh, features on our particular site. Um, and we can get into that in a few minutes. 
But uh, it's a state of uh, New Hampshire historical site. was made that in 1970. So it did get some recognition from the state of New Hampshire back 50 years ago. And uh, my family involvement started on a radio show back in 1955. There's a uh, lodge station out of uh, Boston. It's one of the biggest New England stations. And it's still going. I think it's 85 years it's been going. But back in 1955, my dad was an AT&T Bell Laboratories engineer. And uh, he had been there for about two years at AT AT&T. And before that, he had spent time up in Labrador for the Coast Guard, right, not too far from where the Vikings landed. So he was always interested in the past. And unfortunately, he was there back in the early 50s before they found Lonzo Meadow back in 1960. But he would have definitely taken a trip over there if he had been there at the time. So on this radio show, they were talking about these strange stone ruins in North Salem, New Hampshire, about 40 miles north of Boston, about 20 miles from the seacoast. And he had never heard of these, and yet he only lived eight miles away. And so it was a total surprise that this big Boston station had a whole, you know, a whole topic about this for the evening, about these, these ruins. Uh, after that show, a couple of days later, he's having his hair done. And the town we lived in was Derry, New Hampshire, where Alan Shepard, the first astronaut, came from, and Robert Frost lived there. So, you know, there's a few things that were kind of uh, stand out about Derry, but we lived there most of our lives. And... Um, so he's at a barber shop and he's having his hair done. As he was waiting, he picked up a magazine and he's looking at the magazine and the main feature of the magazine were these same stone ruins, which was kind of a surprise to him. Yeah. So he's looking at it, reading it, and there's photographs and there's a, you know, quite a bit of written about it. And he asked the barber if he could keep the magazine. And the barber goes, well, how old is that? He goes, well, it's 1952. It's been sitting here for three years. So just one of those coincidences. Thank God nobody threw it away. Right. Otherwise, my dad may have forgotten about the show, possibly. But that second thing really what is interest in that weekend, they were at my aunt and uncle's house in that same town of Derry. And about 10 people playing cards, you know, they're on a the table, uh, probably uh, drinking beer and having uh, smoking. Probably this is 1955. <laughs> I was a baby at the time. And uh, my, my dad had the magazine with him and he passed it around. Nobody really knew what it was. They looked at it. Nobody recognized what this thing was until my aunt and uncle looked at it and said, Oh, wow. I think that's the place we used to go back in the 1930s on their bicycles. We used to bicycle down there when they were dating. So the next question out of my dad was, can you find the place? And they said, well, we don't know. We haven't been there in over 20 years. Mm-hmm. So that Sunday, they got all got in a car and they drove around uh, North Salem, New Hampshire. And they finally found a road that looked sort of familiar to them. And they parked a car next to the road. The four of them went up and uh, through about a half a mile through woods, just dense forest and everything. And they found the site. And my dad climbed under this chain link fence. So they were trespassing at the time, of course. And he spent quite a bit of time looking at the ruins. The rest of them stayed outside this chain link fence. It covered about an acre of the main, what we call the main site. When he came out, everybody's like, well, what do you think? And my dad was just totally blown away by this place and mentioned something about maybe possibly getting involved with research study, maybe owning it possibly opening it up to the public as a museum because my mom's response was something about you have rocks in your head, you know, something like that, (laughs) which he really did. So eventually my dad, you know, he met the owner of the property. And in 1958, he opened it up to the public as Mystery Hill Caves as an attraction. And at the same time, he was working at AT AT&T, you know, and he had a new new family. My sister was just born just around that time. She's a couple of years younger than I was. And um, so he was quite busy with, uh, they actually literally built our house too. So that was a lot of work. So um, my dad and my mom basically worked on this place, opening it to the public. They built, they had a visitor center they built. And uh, we've been going for, uh, this will be our, uh, 
I guess a 63rd year we've been in business. Oh my gosh. So 1958, and this is 2021. So 60, yeah, 63 years. Well, I got to do the math, you know. But yeah, 63 years we've been open, but about 66 years that we've been involved with this site. So it's generational, like you were mentioning your show is kind of, you know, a part of your yeah. family. And the same thing here with ours too. And my son is an engineer like my dad and my father-in-law were engineers. And I think before the show, I mentioned we had a, uh, a granddaughter born on 9-11. Yeah, yes. of this year and she'll be like the fourth generation and i don't know if she's gonna i was a pilot for 35 years with the airlines i don't know if she'll be a pilot or engineer or what she's gonna do but hopefully, <laughs> something impressive but i'm sure <laughs> yeah yeah and i just hope she's interested in the site too you know i just oh, hope it continues on you know um, yeah. in the family hopefully you know <laughs> absolutely absolutely so um so it is a family legacy and how did you get to become the president of America Stonehenge or what are, or have you made any changes to it that you've implemented? Well, my dad passed away in 2009. And, um, and then of course I went to me, my sister, um, she was kind of involved with it when she was younger, but she, she was a nurse and she went her own way kind of, she still had an interest in it, but she wasn't directly involved with it. Unfortunately she passed away in 2012 from cancer, you know, pretty quickly on us. So it was only myself and my sister, uh, nobody else. And my mom and my dad had, um, because of the stresses of running the business and everything back in 1975, and I'm sure there are other issues, but they divorced at that time. You know, before that, my mom had been involved with the business too, quite a bit. And I think she always kind of loved the place anyway. But after the divorce, my mom, um, she had, she went and did her own job. You know, she had her own, uh, her own work and everything. And I kept her up to date on what was going on there. But I took over and my wife's been highly involved with it since 1973. She was in the corporate world with Chrysler Financial, Waddell and Reed, and uh, and um, she was uh, with um, another company too, another big company. I'm trying to think of the name of it, but she did, decided in 1993 just to run the business. And at that point, she decided to take the uh, visitors and add on to it a whole new section of it, which our accountant said you'll never be able to do. And she did. You know, she got the financing, and then we got the. She was basically the general contractor. And uh, we put up a new visitor center. It has a theater, bathrooms, everything up to date. So she's been uh, in it for almost uh, 30 years full time. And she was homeschooling my son there, too. Upstairs, we set up a classroom for him. Uh, so it really worked out well. And then he went to the engineer and everything. So um, you know. and, um, in 1970, it was made a state of New Hampshire historic site. So it's that, too, on top of that. That's awesome. I mean, that's, that's quite the legacy. And I love that you're still continuing that legacy and your son is going to continue that legacy and hopefully your granddaughter. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They'd be on that, hopefully. Yeah. yeah. That's amazing. Cause he couldn't um, house lots. Southern New Hampshire really got built up in the sixties when the route 93 out of Boston came into New Hampshire and became a bedroom state for all, you know, Boston and that whole surrounding area had a lot of high tech jobs. So a lot of homes, uh, they're still going in today. Uh, you know, uh, the road went in 1963 and all of a sudden real estate prices went up, homes went up and a lot of towns became little cities. And so we've got about 110 acres we're preserving today. It's a beautiful hill and it's probably the reason we do. And uh, we three-year project uh, of forest management, basically a harvest of the forest and thinning. And now you can see all the surrounding hills and it's so beautiful that you you look at it and say, now I kind of get the idea why these people may have chose this hill 
to build this site on because it is really beautiful. And there's a river to the west. There's a glacial cliff shelter on the west side. Mm-hmm. That glacial cliff shelter, we found pottery back in 1958 that dates to about 2,500 years. They call it Middle Woodland Period Pottery. So Native Americans are living on the west part of the hill probably seasonally. In our parking lot back in 1995, they were doing some shovel test pits. We have the president of the New Hampshire Archaeological Society working with us since 1989, and she was doing a shovel test pit study across the 110 acres and found a wigwam. Actually, the wigwam was a, you know, a big dome structure, and it was about 30 feet across. What they found was all the stains from the uh, post that supported it, two fire pits, and I believe Woods Hole Oceanographic uh, Institute in Woods Hole, Massachusetts, did the uh, carbon dating on that. And they dated to about 2,000 years old, one fire pit, and the other one was about 1,700 years old. And they actually found the grease from cooking from that time still in the dirt. It hadn't degraded. And that could be dated too, but I think it, they were kind of limited budget because each cabin dating is very expensive. So Native Americans were on that hilltop too. The oldest cabin dating we have is 7,400 years old from a possible fire pit. So people may have been on that hill, some human activity going back to the middle archaic time period, almost 7,500 years. So people go, who was there 4,000 years ago in New Hampshire? But there were Native Americans going back over 10,000 years in northern New Hampshire in the White Mountains. So there's no question people were here. It's just who were they? Why did they build the site? And who were the people that built the site for what purpose? Uh, is this site related to some of the other 800 sites across the Northeast? And uh, what happened to the people that built this? You know, those are all questions we're still trying to answer today. This site really shouldn't be here. We've been told that the Northeast shouldn't have any ancient stone ruins at all. And yet these things do exist. Mm-hmm. If you go to the Hudson Valley, right above New York City, Westchester and Putnam County and Dutchess County, there's about um, 500 sites. And some of these have been on ancient aliens. So they didn't talk much about aliens, but they did show some of the sites on the TV show a year and a half ago. And uh, they're very impressive looking chambers. And they tend to align with the sun on like a solstice or equinox or a cross quarter day. Sometimes uh, a, a constellation like the Pleiades, it will be uh, if you're standing inside the chamber looking out through the entrance, maybe a long entrance, you'll see maybe a summer solstice sunset, but you might also see a Pleiades alignment with a structure, for instance. So astronomically, these sites seem to be aligned with the heavens. So farmers setting up these structures has been one answer, but I don't think the farmers were necessarily interested in setting up alignments with the solstices, equinoxes, cross-border days. And the moon goes through an 18 and a half year cycle too that most people aren't aware of. And the next one comes up in 2025, and we just had that forest management. And for the first time, those particular avenues have been open because we began clearing in 1965, and we never got to the lunar alignments, uh, the lunar max, we call them. So 50, uh, almost what, oh, 55, uh, 56 years later, we're just opening up some of the clearings we wanted to open up back in the 60s. So the work is continuing today. That's awesome. Um, so... Hmm. I know that you had the carbon dating from um, way back when. Hold on. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, that's just, hold on. My my stream is acting odd. <laughs> Let me make sure that everything's okay. Okay, there we go. It might be this nervous. place. We get all sorts of weird things up here on this hill. <laughs> <laughs> no kidding. Particularly um, battery playing all the time when they're up trying to film or drones or professional crews coming in like last summer the travel channel, you know, it's just constantly like we brought all these batteries, like six batteries and they're all dead, you know, one of those weird things. Yeah. Do you you think that has (laughs) to do with the stones with the, like, is there any, 
electromagnetic energy coming off of them or anything like that. I don't know much about stones. That's what they talk. Yeah, I'm not that. I mean, I'm not that well versed in it. But there's uh, there's quartz in our rock, a lot of quartz, and there's iron and because there's feldspar, mica, and we have an earthquake fault line. The whole hill is split right in half, east to west. You know. And interesting thing about a fault line is uh, there's about 700 stone circles in Wales, ancient megalithic circles, and they actually go over the border right into England. And I've been in that whole area up there. But uh, they're built within um, either about a mile and a half to the structures being, being built right on the fault lines. And in Scotland, there's about 800 stone circles. I've been to Scotland, too, and I don't know if they're associated with fault lines, too. Mm-hmm. Um, but a lot of people claim they are, you know, and ours is, you can see the whole crack right through the entire hilltop. So yeah, I don't know, maybe some energy drain there, something like that going on, um, possibly, but it's all these different people over the years and we always laugh about it. You know, they go up there, they bring their cameras, their drones and all this equipment and then it's dead, you know, and they got to go back and charge it in the building, come back up and do another take, you know? And, uh, well, on the flip side, on the non- <laughs> land side we have that same thing happen with bigfoot i just want you to know yes that is a thing they our equipment never fails batteries will go dead stuff will stop working (laughs) same thing so so, um so we do have a question we have lots of questions from that um you have quite a few fans in the chat i want you to know that oh thank Um, you yeah you know so okay um Cryptidville wants to know, does America's Stonehenge align geographically with the site in the UK or any other sites? Well, that's a great question. Um, Scott Walters did a show called America on Earth. It ran from 2012 to about 2015. And then uh, that was owned by ABC Disney Corporation, A&E. And then um, Travel Channel Discovery Network actually bought it, I think, two years ago. And they ran 10 new episodes. And we were on one of the earliest episodes. Uh, they filmed this in 2012. Uh, my son was in college at the time. And during one of the semesters, he actually was playing with Google Earth. And he was going out looking across the Northeast, particularly not really thinking uh, he was going to look overseas. But he's looking with other sites uh, that are aligned with our solstices, equinoxes, cross-border day alignments, lunar alignment, just for kicks. Just, you know, one of those things. It, right. This has been talked about for so many years. But with Google Earth. Uh, it's so much easier than it was in the 1970s when it, I know a lot of guys were getting involved with that going, gee, maybe this alignment's aligned with the next hill and that might be a pile of rocks called the con or a stone structure. You know, you can walk into kind of structure or a standing monolith. Mm-hmm. Um, but now with Google Earth, it's so much easier to do. And he was going across the main with the summer solstice sunrise alignment. And that alignment's pretty cool because the stone is actually asymmetrically shaped. Most of our astronomical alignments, but not all, look like a big arrowhead with a point in the middle and kind of that shaped like an arrowhead or a big spear stood up. And the tallest ones are around 10 feet tall. And um, so the summer solstice is unusual because it has a asymmetrical top. The point is on the, uh, let's see if I got it right in my head. I'm looking at it on the, uh, on the left side, I think. And the slant is on the right side of it. If you, when we opened up that alignment around 1973, because it was just all dense winds up there. When we finally saw the horizon in around 1973, clearing out about 800 feet of trees, all of a sudden we saw what the horizon looked like. Two hills intersect and they're the same shape as the top of that rock. So we think they shaped or dressed that stone to fit the notch about five miles distance. And um, between um, that stone and the astronomical center, which used to have two piles of rocks up to 1937, and unfortunately the first archaeologist 
got in there with his crew and they cleaned, they excavated. And when they got to the pile of rocks, these two cars, they didn't know what their function was. They thought they were hollow chambers, like beehive shaped chambers. Mm-hmm. And they thought they were connected to one of our large structures called the Oracle Chamber, but they were not. So they dismantled them and they used the rocks for restoring another structure called the ramp. And we have pictures of that when they were tearing it apart and everything, which is a shame because in 1973, when we began surveying the site using a professional survey team, we found the Astronomical Center was those two cairns and they were destroyed, you know, 40 years before 1973 or roughly that, about 35 years before that. Um, but if you, if you look across at that stone I mentioned, it has a slant, there's a stone circle. And that's where you stood to watch the summer solstice sunrise over that stone through the notch on those two hills, five miles distance. In Europe, they call those horizon features. And those same kind of features are found at some of the 50,000 megalithic sites of Europe. And I've been to quite a few of these. If you follow that line, like my son did, he went across Maine. And Maine doesn't have a lot of uh, these sites. Uh, Connecticut's loaded. Uh, New York is definitely loaded. And uh, Massachusetts has a lot. Vermont has quite a few, too. But Maine has a few structures. And it's a big state, too, in New England. But he went right across past um, Nova Scotia, uh, past Newfoundland, and right across the ocean. And it came up in southern England. He had been to Stonehenge a few times. You know, we took him over there. And he said, gee, this is close to Stonehenge, this particular line, you know. And so he changed the scale. And as he kept changing it, uh, he said, yeah, that's pretty close to Stonehenge. All of a sudden, he just blew it up, and there's Stonehenge sitting underneath the line, which is pretty really? cool. That is interesting. Um, you can try it yourself, you know, using Google Earth. And not only did it go through Stonehenge, but it went through one of the large trilithons. There's five of them, kind of in a U-shaped pattern at Stonehenge. And it goes right through the center of it. And it's amazing. And it's one of those things, could it be a coincidence or not? Um, and that was on Scott Walter's show. Um, after that, I decided to uh, learn how to use Google Earth, you know, and I started looking out elsewhere, like on our true south alignment. We have a true south alignment, and there's a true south wall. And just about four years ago, I found out that's one of our serpentine-shaped walls. It's shaped like a snake, and it's also true south pointing right off those astronomical platforms. If you went from the two astronomical platforms are located north and south, true of each other. But it goes true south to go through this serpent wall, which we didn't know in the 1970s. We just call it the south wall. Mm-hmm. If you continue, it goes through Machu Picchu and Peru, which is a UNESCO World Heritage Site. Our summer, our winter solstice sunset goes southwest and it goes into the moon pyramid at Tihuacan, north of Mexico City. And I've been there with my dad back in the early 80s. That's an amazing site down there. Again, I believe that's another world uh, UNESCO World Heritage Site. The equinox sunset goes through Chaco Canyon in New Mexico, which we were at about 20 months ago, and uh, through Pueblo Benito. And it's a big V-shaped structure at Chaco Canyon. And um, that line goes right through the center of that. On the other side, the equinox sunrise, it goes through the Canary Islands. And Canary Islands, most people don't know, have some really cool truncated pyramids. And it goes right through the pyramids. So it could all be coincidental. I know the skeptics and you know, the debunkers will think it's purely coincidental. They've also called their astronomical alignments coincidences, but there are 51 alignments for the sun, moon, and stars. I could see a couple being coincidental. I think most reasonable people would say, yeah, you could have a couple coincidences. But when you have 51 of them that align, I think that's a little more than coincidental. So when you hear anybody skeptical talk about the site, they usually don't discuss the astronomical alignments other than perhaps saying, oh, that's, um, it's, it's uh, what do they, they usually use a certain term, and they sometimes say coincidence, because I know 
archaeologists mainstream like the word coincidence, you know? Right. Uh, I don't think that's coincidental at all, especially you have the stones that are shaped like arrowheads. They were part of the bedrock. They had to be separated from the bedrock. Then they were dressed using a technique called percussion flaking. It's the same technique uh, ancient people used to use to make arrowheads, uh, stone um, axes, stone knives, uh, and, and if I mentioned arrowheads, but it's, it's, it's a technique of shaping the stone. And this was uh, found by Dr. David Stuart Smith when he joined us in 1978. He passed away in 2016. Unfortunately, we're just starting to find serpentine walls. We have 14 of them and we were finding some other features, but he got cancer that year and he, he learned of a few of these. But he was the one that really was instrumental in finding that the stones that make up all these chambers, these are big slabs of stone. Some of them weigh uh, close to 30,000 pounds because they're smaller ones. They make up the roof slabs, the wall slabs. These are big slabs stood on the end, like a big vertical stones. They're called orthostats. And also the astronomical alignments, the sacrificial table. And even the drains, there's a whole network of underground drains. And these consist of rocks, like parallel rows of rocks with capstones. Those capstones are flat and they were once part of the bedrock. So somebody separated the bedrock. It is foliated. It comes up in layers. And then they would use hammer stones to shape it. And the first stone that was found like that, uh, still in its quarry site, was 1982. Dave had instructed our staff, if you're out in the woods and you see a stone that looks like it might be lifted off the bedrock and maybe propped up with another stone, artificially perhaps, and the edge of it looks serrated, like dimpled, it might be a, it might be a stone that's being quarried and shaped. And one of our staff members, her name is Mary, and she was out having a picnic lunch in 82 in the summer, sitting on this rock, and she kind of noticed looking down that the rock seemed to be propped up, as Dave had mentioned. She looked underneath it because there's a lot of debris that had built up and dirt. She saw a stone that seemed to be supporting it, and then she noticed the edge of it looked dimpled, like somebody might have been hammering on it to shape it. So in 1980, and Dave Starr was thrilled by that, and he he uh, did an excavation in 1983, and when he dug down through several inches of soil on the bedrock, they found all the little flakes of stone laying there where it had been struck with a hammer stone. And a state archaeologist who's main, what we call mainstream, they're usually a little bit more skeptical about our site, let's mm-hmm. say. Well, he came down, and I think he was impressed by Dave anyway, and Dave's credentials and Dave's sincerity uh, and Dave's dedication and hard work. And Dave had just, before he joined us in 78, had been over in Europe working for the British government on medieval sites and megalithic sites doing restoration. So he had six years of experience over there too. Then he got a couple of doctorate degrees and everything. Mm-hmm. So he listened to Dave, he came down and he kind of, uh, kind of oversaw that work. And he said, it's unmistakable that your big slabs here were actually shaped using stone age technology, not metal age technology. So getting back to that alignment, that stone has been shaped. It was stood up and it does align with Stonehenge, which is pretty cool. And then we have the other ones I mentioned too. Right. That is, it's just unbelievable how I've always told people if I could have one superpower, it would be to be able to touch something and go back in time and, you know, see what was going on, like what this stone has been through art stones, you know, stuff like that. I've always, history is fascinating to me. And with what you're doing, you're preserving it, which is amazing. You're discovering it, which is amazing, but you've also, you're showing what was going on back then and, and how we've come to be where we are now. And that's just fantastic yeah. to me, you know? My dad always says you learn from history, you know? And yes. uh, you don't learn from history, you learn from history. But thank you so much for that. Yeah, it's, it's one of the sites that uh, is being protected. Um, in the 1960s, a lot of highways, as I mentioned, went in. And there are some chambers 
There's a couple outer belts around Boston, Route 128 and 495, which is part of 95 that goes from Maine all the way down to Florida, that Route 95 on the mm-hmm. East Coast. Anyway, 495 is an outer belt of Boston, and 128 is a little bit closer in. And we have photographs still in our records of stone structures that were back in the 1963. They were bulldozed, you know, and they're no longer there because at the time, you know, and even today, there's some doubt as to what these structures are, you know. Um, you know, they're not important. Um, people shouldn't be wasting their time looking at these old stone structures. They should uh, put their time into legitimate archaeological sites. You know, we've heard that, which is really a shame. But I, as David Stewart Smith said, he told me this before he passed away, it seems to be an ancient culture of stone builders or what we call a lithic culture mm-hmm. across the Northeast. And what he didn't know is we're finding the same type of stone structures all the way out to California. There's a town called Weed, California, and there's stone walls that are resem- resemble ours with serpentine walls, chevron-shaped walls, walls that will go f- to a boulder, then it will change course, go to another boulder, change course again, going to another boulder. New England farmers, when they built walls, they built them for generally three purposes, to, f- to clean a field. You don't want the rocks in the field if you're going to plow. As you're hitting. The other reason is to establish a boundary and perhaps a stock fence. And sometimes these walls served all three purposes. And in New England, there's about 240,000 miles of walls, enough to go from here to the moon and a little bit beyond that. But we think there's also these ancient walls that were not built by farmers, and they look different. They have a lot of big slabs of stone versus the rounded type uh, field stones that farmers found left over by the glaciers, kind of rounded, you know. These walls will have windows in them, beautiful lintel windows. I don't know if I sent you a picture of some of the lintel windows. They're absolutely beautiful. We have 14 of them at our site. There's also uh, windows like that in the Berkshires in Massachusetts, and they're part of serpent walls, just like some of ours are part of the serpent walls. Serpent wall will be a wall that looks like a snake. There's a head, a body, and a tail. Uh, Connecticut has hundreds of them. And, and down there, they go from 30 feet in length up to about 300 feet. The average is about 100 feet. They can be linear or straight. They can be rectilinear with the head like 90 degrees off from the body or the tail can be. And some of them are uh, shaped like the letter S, just like you think a snake would look. And some of them actually are looped. They'll actually come back around and they'll bite their tail. And that's called the Ouroboros. And there's actually ancient jewelry. And I think uh, uh, on pottery, there's paintings. Um, but it's part of the ancient mythology of Egyptians, Greeks, and other cultures. Even in the, in the Americas, Ouroboros would represent eternity or the circle of life. And one of our biggest serpent walls actually starts with the watch house. It's a chamber that's about 300 feet from the main site. It's a multifunctional chamber. There's a lot that's going on with it astronomically, but it looks like the head of a serpent, and then the back of it, it undulates. It goes around counterclockwise, 2,550 feet, comes back in front of its mouth, and it looks like it's biting it. It does one more hump or undulation, and then it twists 90 degrees to a pointed tail. And we've always seen the hump. We always saw that what we, we know as a tail today, but over, I'd say at least six decades, my family was there, we didn't find this until about four years ago. We never recognized it as anything to do with serpent or anything. We just thought it was part of a wall. And you look at it now and it's unmistakable. It looks, it does the undulations and everything. And the head of it looks like a big serpent. And it's very similar to the ones in Pennsylvania. And again, back in Connecticut, there's like hundreds of these things. The Hudson Valley has them too. Mm-hmm. And when you see these repeating patterns across the landscape, Alabama has them. They call them rattlesnake walls. They're in Indiana. And in eastern Colorado, they have the same thing. So when you see these things stretched across the country, you don't think uh, this is just a big coincidence Mm -hmm. or just a crazy farmer building a wall. 
it just happens to look like a serpent, you know? Right. I actually, um, I saw recently, I was doing a little research for this show and I actually saw the, um, the walls like that, that, you know, do, you know, but they swore, I, I read that they were made like that because it used less rocks or bricks than a regular wall. But they actually, yeah, they're actually longer though. You know, they're actually, really? yeah. Yeah. I mean, they take it. Yeah. I've heard somebody say, well, maybe, maybe they put a wooden fence next to us. Like our big S shape one is 130 foot, 38 feet long from tip to tail. It's mm-hmm. a big swooping S with a triangular head and it has a flat slab in it. We, which is stood up, we call spine stone. A lot of these uh, serpent walls have these vertical slabs in like a repeating pattern again. Um, and they call them a herm stone or a Manitou stone, the Manitou. But um, I don't think they're in the, and these are sitting right on bedrock too, right on bedrock. So somebody might say, well, some farmer cleared the land to plow. We've run about almost a hundred shovel test pits across the hill, almost one shovel test pit per acre. And we found one plow mark up near the summer solstice where the plow was set on the ground, but there's no cultivation marks across the rest of the landscape. It's just too thin. The soil is not arable. It's full of rocks. And so when you have a wall that looks like a serpent, you know, and it undulates vertically or horizontally, and it doesn't serve a purpose for a farm. I lived on a farm for my first flying job up in uh, Rutland, Vermont for an airline. I lived in the summer house and I drove my bike, my 10 speed around. I used to do a lot of instruction up there in the plane too, flying low over these farms. But by bicycle, I'd look at these farms and when I lived on, I said, this doesn't look anything like our site or the walls, you know, mm-hmm. the walls time farmers built, they're usually pretty linear with some exceptions. They're pretty straight. You know, they go pretty straight, they might bend and that kind of thing. And we have really good photographs of farmers walls. But when you have a wall that undulates up and down vertically, you know, mm-hmm. and then they have these windows in it and then you have a boulder head and a boulder tail and it, they just don't go anywhere. They're just sitting in the middle of the woods. Right. It's like, uh, what's that? What is that? It looks like yeah. a serpent. I think the constellation Draco may have been inspirational for him. And um, there's about 94 serpent mounds with their most famous is in Peebles, Ohio. It's 1,350 feet long. And its undulations are actually aligned with the solstices and equinoxes. It's on the side of a meteorite crater. And that was only discovered a few years ago, several years ago. They, they found that fact uh, that the ancient people built it on that. They are trying to get that on the um, United Nations World Heritage Site. I mean, uh, we're, yeah, World Heritage Site. They're trying to do that. But I think right now with COVID-19, everything's slowed down. And I don't think it made it last year. But it's a pretty pretty amazing structure. Mm-hmm. But um, our stone wall that wraps around itself and bites its tail is about twice as long as that. That's, in- that's amazing. I mean, I yeah, I don't think it's a coincidence. I have to agree with you. It's... Um, a good friend of mine says she doesn't believe in coincidences. And um, after hearing yeah. that, yeah, it just doesn't make sense. All right, hold on. We had another question. Um, is there any evidence of Druidic activity at the site here in the U.S.? Well, the site, if it's 4,000 years, it predates that time period of the Druids. And I know even Stonehenge has been linked to the Druids, but Stonehenge goes back um, almost 5,000 years. And it took about 1,500 years to build with what we know today. I mean, someday in the future, we may have different dates for you and on that. So the Druids are around, but a later time period, they usually were enforced and everything. So um, I I don't have any evidence that the Druids used our site at all or did not use our site. Um, okay. But our site does resemble the megalithic sites. And megalithic sites in Western Europe number about 50,000. 
if you go into Russia, the Ural Mountains have about 3,500 what look like Western European megalithic sites. They're in China. They have their own website, India. And there's just thousands of North Korea probably has them because South Korea had about 80,000 megalithic sites and they really take care of them very well. And a megalithic site just means huge stones, you know, huge right. stone structures. And they go from the Neolithic into the Bronze Age. And once you hit the Iron Age, uh, the megalithic building stopped in the West, you know, Western Europe. But recently we found out they're in Australia. And I did a radio show with a host from New Zealand live back about three or four years ago. And, you know, we talked about our site, just like we're doing now. He never mentioned it, but there are megalithic structures in New Zealand. And I only became aware of that in the last few months. So back four or five years ago, he may not have been aware of it either. But in Australia, the Aussie Stonehenge is an example. So there was an, they think people have been in Australia probably 50 to 60,000 years. And I was aware of paintings or petroglyphs, but not really stone structures, but there are. Uh, I have a number of people that have visited us in the last couple of years from Australia, and um, they weren't aware of it either. So it's not well known over there, but you can actually Google it, Google that and you'll see that these structures exist, you know. Mm-hmm. So they seem to be worldwide on every continent except the Antarctic. And if they weren't in North America, it would be a little unusual because they're in Ecuador and South America. Uh, they're in, there's the, um, uh, what do they call it? The uh, Brazil, I think it's called, Stonehenge or the Amazon Stonehenge, it's actually, um, it borders Brazil, and I think French, uh, was it French Guiana, I think? I forget, it's one of the, one of the just north of Brazil, there's another uh, country, and it's right in that country on the border of Brazil, and it's actually megalithic. They look like a megalithic ruins you see elsewhere, you know? It's, it's, it seems to be almost like a worldwide phenomenon of building right. these huge, uh, building these structures with huge stones in them, you know? That is, that's amazing. Because, um, and I'm guessing it's not just for shelter, which is what you would originally think. Mm, right. Yeah. People think, yeah, these people think our site was a village because it kind of looks, again, like the Fred Flintstones, but mm-hmm. the size, the shape, the orientation of the structures, uh, the amount of space inside, a lot of stonework went into them, but they yield very little interior space. And when you look at the artifacts, we have hammer stones, rubbing stones, stone scrapers, arrowheads. And, uh, and a lot of these are on display in our museum. You can come in and see them. Some people say, well, there's no, no, there's no Stone Age artifacts. You know, like they're right in the display cases, you know. Um, and there's actually been, you know, many of them that have been found on our site. Um, but if it was a living site, you'd find their middens or their trash pits. And that's what you really want to find, you know. The people in Western Europe, generally, they lived in Hydewood or Bach homes when they built stone places like Stonehenge. And those places are... Um, no longer there. Material is, um, you know, it decomposes. You might find arrowheads and pottery and that kind of thing, but you don't find their structures because they've brought it away, basically. Right. And that made it very difficult for archaeologists over the years. When they look at these megalithic sites, they weren't places where people lived, uh, as far as we know today, you know. They were places of worship, observation of the heavens, that kind of thing, perhaps burial, because even Stonehenge has some of the ashes there. But they weren't, they weren't villages, per se, you know. Okay. And now they're starting to find them using LIDAR, and they're using like Worldview 3 satellite imaging, they're mm-hmm. using thermal imaging and uh, ground penetration radar, which we've used all of that at our site, except for the satellite imaging. And um, you can actually see things under the ground. And that's how they're finding some of their villages. And once they get into that and they can do some excavations, it starts to tell a story about the people, you know, how long they were there, who the people were, what they ate, all sorts of information that these big stone ruins don't tell. They're, right. they're massive. They're impressive. They last almost forever. But 
you can't tell a lot about the people that built them. It just was a big mystery. And that's all recent because I've been over to Stonehenge in Europe quite a few times. I haven't been in a, since uh, over 20 years and a lot has been discovered since then. We got to get back over there, I guess. So. Yeah, you do. <laughs> yeah. Report back. No, that, yeah. that's, that's, I mean, very well stated about they're amazing, but they don't tell us much. Um, however, uh, to talk about new dating techniques. Um, so I know that there are new, some new dating techniques out there that y'all have used. Um, lots of big names with acronyms. Like um, the surface luminescence dating, um, SLD, and optically stimulated luminescence, OSL. Yeah, so all of those, drone, thermal imaging, high definition photographs, LIDAR, like you said, worldview, three satellite, etc. So you guys, I mean, you really, I know that the world below will tell you more, but it looks like you guys are doing everything you can for these to tell you, for these methods to tell you what you're looking at. Yeah, we look, look above to the heavens, you know, like the serpent walls might be inspired by the constellation Draco, for instance, that kind of thing. But um, but we have been using LIDAR. A gentleman approached us just about a year ago. He's out of Connecticut and he's um, mapped about 15 acres and it took about 600 hours of processing. And the handheld LIDAR can um, 300,000 points per second at each square meter is about 150,000 points. And uh, air, uh, drone drone LIDAR is about uh Four to, I think he said four to 800 points per square meter and airborne is only four to eight. So this is high, high resolution. It's 3D and he actually has cameras on top of the handheld There's uh, definition cameras. And the imaging is amazing and it's, you can strip out the trees and all vegetation, almost 110 acres. So he hasn't done all of it, he did 15 acres. And one of his friends brought in the ground penetration radar last year too. And she was mapping some of the site with that. And um, we have had ground penetration radar there in the 1990s. One of our neighbors, actually a company, GSSI, actually was a quarter of a mile from us, and they were selling their equipment worldwide. They moved downtown Salem about eight miles away. Now they're in Nashville, New Hampshire, so we don't see them. But they used to bring their customers up and use the equipment with our archaeologists. And you can see up down to about 100 feet under ideal conditions. And uh, in some cases, like a salty... Uh, road, uh, the woman that owns it, Doria, she says, yeah, you can see down to about two and a half feet. It depends on the soil conditions and uh, a lot of different factors, but up to 100 feet, ideally. So what they're going to do with it, she mapped part of the site, too. And what they're going to do is take her image and his images, and they're going to blend them together for 3D above and below ground on some of the site. It will be the first time that's done. And she just got a new uh, computer with uh, new software. And the gentleman, Tom, who owns the uh, LiDAR, he just got a supercomputer, too, to handle all the processing. And it still took about 600 hours just to process the, the 15 acres. We have um, photogrammetry. You take thousands of pictures of, like, a structure, and then you come up with, like, a 3D image of it inside and out. And that's pretty cool. We've had that on our site, too. It looks a little bit like LiDAR almost. And they've been doing that in Connecticut on some of the serpentine walls, and mm -hmm. they look amazing. And uh, we have thermal imaging camera. And a gentleman, um, he's been doing that for about three years. And he's going to come back again now that we have the forest management thing done. And um, his imaging got out to maybe 15 inches under the soil. I'm not sure. But he can see mostly surface. And it has to be a, like a temperature, temperature differential for this thermal imaging camera to work. And he uses a drone. And he just bought a new camera, I guess, that uses both high-definition uh, regular photography with thermal imaging. And it blends it together. 
And he's been, you know, he's going to be using that. He actually came up last year and he tried it, but he's got to come back and use the new equipment. I think it was like a $12,000 camera, you know, and like a $6,000 drone or something like that. And um, so we've had all of that. We haven't had the Worldview 3 satellite. Sarah Pockott from um, Birmingham, Alabama is the one that's, she's called the space archaeologist. She's found the, uh, perhaps the second Viking settlement up in uh, Newfoundland and more, more um, uh, pyramids over in Egypt. And uh, I think she's helped out in Guatemala where they found 60,000 more Mayan temple sites using LIDAR. And I think her equipment too. And our, our gentleman, Tom, that owns the, uh, the uh, LIDAR, he has been in touch with her um, over the last 10 years. So I don't know, it'd be kind of cool if she could turn her satellite towards New England to see if there's some things that we haven't seen yet, you know? Right. So we're interested in all of that, all that equipment right now. And the OSL, uh, optically stimulated luminescence, um, we have had that at our site. It was done on, on 9-11, the day my granddaughter was born, which was kind of, a, and it was a day, you know, when, when uh, the World Trade Center was hit. I work for American Airlines, too, so very close to that. But um, anyway, um, that day, they had 25 members up from Brookhaven National Laboratory from the University of Washington. Dr. Feathers came up. Um, two state archaeologists from Concord, New Hampshire, were there. The New England Antiquities Research Association, the group my dad started in 64 there, a team came down. And we had the past president of New Hampshire Archaeological Society, all these people on staff, and they took four cores at our site. And it takes quite a while to get it processed, and it's over $1,000 per core. And what they can tell you is how old the dirt is or how old the rock is. So if you build a structure and then it's concealed under earth, you can actually go and you can date the dirt, how long it's been sitting there, and get an idea how old the wall is or the structure or whatever. And I found out today about 2 o'clock that we won't have to wait to next September. It's usually about a year wait. Uh, we were also aware that it might be a little bit sooner than that, but today we found out that Dr. Feathers is retiring from the University of Washington, I think, sometime this year, and he wants to get this done. So we may get some results this week. It could be tomorrow. And they did seven other places. Uh, so they did two more sites in New Hampshire, north of us. They did one in New York, uh, north of New York City, at one of the, one of the sites down there. Uh, two in Connecticut and one in Rhode Island. So we're anxiously awaiting ours, excited too, ours plus those other seven. One in Pennsylvania that Nira had looked at, that group had studied in 2018. It was a separate uh, project. And the results came back last year from that. It was actually terracing, man-made terracing of stone, a stone structure. Again, it should be colonial, post-colonial, according to mainstream. And the dates on it kind of range from about 3000 BC up to about I'm going to say about 500 AD, but the, the, what they call the central date or the medium date or the weighted date, I guess, was 570 BC. So this structure was sitting there at least 500 years before Christ. So it wasn't colonial or post-colonial. Right. So, um, and they may want to do it again just to double check, you know, doing it, but, but it's very, very expensive to do it. So our site had four cores, so you can imagine how much. Yeah. Somebody from there had passed away and left some money to help out on this project, which is really nice. And I hope they honor this particular person. They left, they left quite a bit of money. And Nira has been really good about um, picking out projects to do dating and, you know, survey work and this kind of stuff. So we're really excited about the OSL. We have had 12 carbon datings at our site starting in 1967. And then we had the um, astronomical survey that took place from 73 to 1977. We called that part one or we sent that data to the Harvard-Smithsonian Center for Astrophysics in Cambridge, Massachusetts. 
1978, we get the results back. And what they said, we have the name of the person that did the whole analysis with the data. So, well, if this, these alignments were used for that purpose with the sun, moon, or stars, uh, they would work about 1800 BC, plus or minus a couple hundred years due to the Earth's tilt. You also have 24 star alignments. Of course, at that time, we only knew of one with Polaris, the pole star, the north alignment. We didn't know we had 23 other star alignments. So that today we have 51 alignments uh, with the sun, moon, and stars. And that 1800 BC did agree with the earliest carbon dating on the main site in 1971. So seven years before we got the results from Harvard, we got the um, carbon dating from Geochrome Laboratories, also in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And that was 1800 BC plus or minus 250 years. So carbon dating and astronomical data seem to agree. And then with David Stuart Smith and Dr. Gary Hume, the state archaeologist, the way the stones are shaped using percussion flaking, you know, starting mm-hmm. seem to agree with that, you know. Uh, I didn't give you an exact date, but it kind of agrees with a prehistoric date. So that's, the OSL is coming up. Yeah, it could be this week. You know, we might be excited. I'm a little that's anxious. Awesome. I, to see. I hope that y'all get the results this week. I really do. I'll, I'll, send, you a, I'll, send, you a, um, I'll send you a message. Yeah. Okay, you please know, do. Please do. Um, yeah. So you also have a website. Um, so that's www.stonehengeusa.com. Will you be posting the results on the website? We will. Yeah, we'll put it on a website. We have Facebook. We have Instagram. My daughter-in-law really handles most of that. And then I'm sure we'll probably, um, you know, it might make some news. You know, we'll, uh, I'll let all of, you know, like yourself, I'll let you know about it. And sometime we can fit that into a program again, you know, with Absolutely. some more evidence or something that might be interesting to your listeners. Absolutely. Um, but the place has brought a lot of people to our site. You know, like I mentioned, uh, Ronnie LeBlanc with uh, the Bigfoot, you know, expedition. He's been there. And um, my dad's friend, Charles Hapgood from Keene State College. He wrote many different books and became kind of famous in the circles. Um, and Albert Einstein actually signed one of his, and actually did the Ford, one of the only Fords that Albert Einstein ever did. Earth, I think it's called Earth Shifting Crust, I believe it was. And he wrote several books, but he was over in Keene, New Hampshire, which is about two hours west of here. And he was really involved with our site too. He thought maybe ancient Phoenicians built our site. And that goes back to 1961. But he gave my dad a cast of Bigfoot back in 1982, just before he passed away. And he gave my dad some of his collection too. And I started at my dad's house probably eight years later. He built a new house, not very close to the museum. And I saw it on the wall. I go, what the heck is that thing? He goes, well, that's Bigfoot. And Charles Hapgood gave it to me. I said, well, where the heck did he get that from? And he said, well, it came from Sir Edmund Hillary. And Sir Edmund Hillary, of course, the first guy to climb Mount Everest. I said, he did? He goes, yeah, he went over there. He thought... I thought it was in 1961 with Marlon Perkins from, um, uh, it was called the, um, oh, what the name of it? It was, um, it was an ABC show, The Wild, Wild Animal Kingdom, I think it was called, mm-hmm. and Mutual of Omaha's Wild Animal Kingdom. It was a show that ran into the 70s. But Marlon Perkins was the original host. They supposedly went to the Himalayas to look for Bigfoot back in 61. So I did a little research uh, last year trying to pin that down a little bit more. And what it looks like is, Sir Edmund Hillary went over with Eric Shipton, the famous British mountaineer, in 1951. And they found some tracks. They took a whole bunch of pictures. And when they got back to London, they actually created the cast in the studio or back at the headquarters. It wasn't where they poured uh, plaster into the track or anything like that. And so I think this, this cast goes back to 1951. And again, Eric Shipton, he's pretty famous you know, in the circles. And it wasn't the one 10 years later with Marlon Perkins. It was actually two years before Sir Edmund Hillary actually climbed Mount Everest. So that was kind of cool, you know, and we still have it in our collection today. 
But our website is um, StonehengeUSA.com. And if you go there, you can actually um, look at our 12-minute video because our theater is closed. Our building is open again, but the theater is closed because of COVID-19. You can download a free app, and you can do a complete virtual tour of our site. And it has audio. It has visual. And it has, you know, text about what the site is. So you can either take a complete virtual tour at home. But when you come to our place, you can use it as you're walking around. It's pretty cool, you know. It's, right. I think some of the national parks are starting to do that today, too, you know. And um, there's a phone number. There's an email. If you have questions, you know, call us or email us, you know. So, and we're open every day about Thanksgiving and Christmas. Um, and we're open right now from 9 to 5. It takes about an hour, hour and a half to take a tour of the site, basically. That's yeah, about an hour north of Boston. <laughs> well, I've added that to my bucket list. I just want you to know. <laughs> oh, <laughs> yeah. As soon as I can get up that way. Um, but I, I am planning <laughs> to get up that way. I'm going to have to take like a two week thing yeah. to do all the big footing and stone hinging and everything that I need to do. That'd be cool. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Um, okay. So we have quite a few questions from the chat if you're up for it. Well, sure. Yeah. Try. Okay. All right. Um, Jamie King wanted to know, what about ley lines within the Earth energy grids? Yeah, um, there has been a study of that in the late 70s. There was actually a booklet written in England. Uh, Francis Hitching was in the book. Edward Krupp from the Griffith Observatory. Uh, and I have the booklet at the museum. I actually rediscovered it about two years ago. And I have a friend in England, uh, Maria Wheatley. She's really big on this over in England. And in fact, uh, about a year ago, she was with Patrick Stewart from Star Trek, the commander. She was at one of the mm -hmm. megalithic sites, but she's big in dowsing. And her dad visited our site back for over 40 years ago, and I didn't know it, you know. And she was going to visit us last fall, and she's really big into ley lines, dowsing. And I've done some of it myself just for fun, you know, my, you know, just to try mm -hmm. it out. I have a couple of friends that do it, and they, they, they gave me the rods, let me try it. And uh, they said I was actually quite good at it. I don't know if I am or not. But um, <laughs> the astronomical alignments, actually, that booklet shows a nice map of the walls and the astronomical alignments in 1978. And that alignment that goes to Stonehenge, as I mentioned, that's one of the prime ley lines, according to them in 78. That was like 43 years ago, they said that. Um, and uh, what was his name? John Michel was in that book, too. And he's from England. Mm -hmm. Francis Hitchens from England. And uh, Maria, Maria Wheatley, she has that booklet, too, and she was familiar with it. But um, that, I wish I remember the name of the booklet. It was very good because it was a study of the ley lines at our site. They said the walls were on the water lines and the astronomical alignments were the ley lines. So when it goes to Stonehenge, it's going to be a ley line too. And uh, I got a couple of friends that have been up there. One was in charge of the West Coast Thousands Convention out in Santa Cruz that went virtual last year. I was supposed to go out there and do PowerPoint presentations for them at the university. And that got canceled, uh, so I didn't get out there. But um, she's really good at dowsing. And I, she was kind of like my mentor. And we'd walk along, I'd close my eyes, and the rods would go out when we crossed the ley lines because I didn't want to trip or anything like that, but they, we did it many, many times. And I tried to do it without looking, you know, and all of a sudden the rods would go out, you know? So I don't know. It seemed to work. Uh, my dad claimed he found the well at, the, at our museum. So people could have drinking water back in 1958 using dowsing rod. Actually it was a dowsing stick. We'd use right. that. So we do have people coming down. Sig Wandren was the, uh, the president of the American, I think it's American uh, Society of Dowsers out of Vermont. He's in England now, and Maria knows him too. And he would bring his groups down in the 70s and 80s. And I think maybe in the 90s, he relocated himself to England. And that's where he does a lot of his work today, Sigmar. But he wrote books, I guess, and 
he was kind of famous. Um, he's getting up there too, and he hates like all of us, but he, uh, but he's still over there in England doing that, looking at these ancient megalithic sites and the ley lines over there too. So we're familiar with it, definitely. And people can come in if they want, and they can do that. It doesn't disturb the site, you know. It doesn't impact. Yeah. It's not like they're digging holes up there. Metal detectors we frown on. We have our own because people want to go up there and dig. It's like, no, you can't dig. You, you know, this is an archaeological site. You know, you have right. to do it properly. <laughs> but I had to show up one day with a, uh, a couple of uh, months ago. I'm like, oh, excuse me. But yeah, we want to go up there and, you know, with the metal detector and set. I'm like, no, you can't, you can't do that. You but can't later, do but, yeah, but doing the, uh, you know, the with the pendants, with the, with the rods, that's fine. It, you know, that's fine. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's fascinating. I actually uh, did not know, woefully uneducated apparently, but I didn't know that there were, um, I knew that people still doused. I just didn't realize, I guess, that there were um, groups and everything dedicated right, to it. Yeah, that's fascinating. If people are interested, they can Google just dowsing and then they'll find the groups and stuff like that. That's but amazing. They, uh, I think that's this supposed to be one this year. At, um, there's a dowsing group, gonna, and I think the same lady, she's in Massachusetts. She, she did the one out of Santa Cruz and she's doing the one in Flagstaff. Uh, I think it's in October or something like that. So there are groups and they do meet in different parts of the country. And, you know, we welcome them as long as they don't dig at our place, you know, <laughs> non-invasive kind of thing, you know? <laughs> yes. Okay. Um, let me ask, um, the stones, are the stones indigenous to the area where they're constructed? And again, that's, well, that's a Jamie really, King. really good question. The quarried slabs were quarried off the hilltop. And since that one in 1982 was discovered by Mary, we found, especially in the last few years, we found about 34 of them. And some of these, you know, a multi-ton stones, so they were separated from the bedrock, they were propped up. It's the rounded type rocks, the glacial boulders that are brought in from a different place by nature, you know, by the glaciers. But the big slabs, and they compose the roof slabs, the wall slabs, the sacrificial table, the uh, astronomical alignments, as I mentioned. And these are all indigenous to the hilltop. Yeah, but some of these big slabs are, you know, several tons, and they're actually up to a thousand feet from the main site. And after we uh, got to like number thirty or thirty-one, and we found thirty-four now, and they keep we keep finding them out there. I think when we cleared the forest and we just finished that project, we're going to find more of them. It dawned on us that these people hadn't completed the site. It looks like it was a work in progress, and these slabs are pretty huge. They're as big as any on the site today, you know. It looks like they had intentions of bringing them up and building a bigger complex. And then the question is, well, why didn't they, why didn't they do that? What happened to them? Why did it stop? And then you can come up with all sorts of speculation and theories, you know, warfare, disease, climate change. I mean, who knows, you know? One of the thoughts was if these people were old world, we know Native Americans were all around the site. They may have had either 100% involvement or some involvement, but this also seems to be an old world. When you look at the... Uh, Again, the size, shape, and orientation of the structures are so similar to the ones in Western Europe. I and mean, there's a couple of them that look like the ones in the Ural Mountains of Russia. It could be just uh, coincidental, of course. But um, if they were old world people and you had the uh, you had the Bronze Age, you needed tin and copper. And the theory is that they were coming to the new world for both of these resources, the Phoenicians and others. That's one theory. You know, it's not, of course, proven that when the Iron Age happened, you don't, no, no longer needed to come over here because iron can be found anywhere and it's cheap. Mm -hmm. And even poor people can make iron tools, weapons, and utensils and stuff. You didn't need the Bronze Age. Basically, the market fell. And that might have been a reason why they cut off coming over across the ocean. That's just a theory. You know, It's interesting to talk about. It may have not happened. But that's possibly why these people stopped building. I think they're going to have a much bigger construction up there. If you visit, you can see, you know. Mm -hmm. We always thought it was probably mostly complete, 
But after finding all these huge roof slabs, they look like roof slabs, just like, you know, you have in the structures, that I think they were going to continue building the site. And then it came to a stop for some reason. Hmm. That's interesting. Um, Patrick Vaughn would like to know, what religion are they tied to or pagan beliefs? Well, definitely sun, probably sun. The sun and moon were very important to them. And and the question is, who were the people? You know, if we knew the people, yeah, we could probably pin down more of the the, uh, religion, what type of religion they practice, you know. You know, we have that sacrificial table there. It's just called that. I think Goodwin back in the 1930s, the first researcher, he called it the Great Stone Table, but other people called it the Sacrificial Table. It's about four and a half tons, sits up on four legs. We do. We have found in the last four years not only serpentine walls, 14 of them, and 14 beautiful windows in the walls. These are just beautiful winter walls. We found also that um, in the zigzag, walls going from boulder to boulder to boulder, that the floor plan of the chambers, and we used the LIDAR just recently to prove that, the trapezoid. So if a farmer was building all this, you know, say for the sake of argument, everything was built by a farmer two or 300 years ago, I think you'd have 90 degree corners, rectangular, square shape. This, the floor plans of the courtyard, um, of the uh, oracle chamber, of the paddy chamber, of the chamber in ruins. And it's like a next to the sacrificial table is kind of a rectangular area that people call the animal pen. It actually looks like it could have been where something was kept for a while before maybe, you know, if they were in a sacrifice, we just don't know. It has two little niches where you could keep food in too. It's, you'd have to see it. It's hard to display. Mm-hmm. When you look down at it from above, and, I, and it, we, we've been doing a lot of measuring, but when Tom ran his LIDAR over that too, when you look at the imaging on the screen, and we're doing a PowerPoint together, we're going to have a PowerPoint presentation of the LIDAR. We're working on that. That'll be pretty cool. We're going to have, a, we're going to go to meetings and conferences with that. You can see the trapezoid shape just with your eye. His equipment can see down to one centimeter. So we're looking at a standard unit of measure too. So not only can we get really accurate shapes with this LIDAR because it's so accurate, but when, when somebody built this site, they probably used a yardstick of some sort. Roscoe Whitney from MIT uh, was an engineer and he was a foreman back in 1937. And uh, he said, he said, whoever built the site either didn't give a damn or know about linear measurements because I looked at the width, the height, and the depth of these structures, and they don't conform to imperial measurements of inches, feet, or yards, which you think it would be if it was colonial or post-colonial. Right. Um, but we discovered in the 70s when I was making the diorama, which is the first thing you see when you walk into a visitor center today, it's still there. Mm-hmm. I built a diorama of the astronomical alignments and maybe 30 acres out of the 110 acres. And uh, we were doing some careful measuring on the site back in 76, 77. And we were already aware of a measurement called the megalithic yard, which is found in some of the megalithic sites. It's 32 inches, 0.64 or 83 centimeters. And we sort of, when we started measuring, we said, I think we might have a megalithic unit here at this site. And that's back, you know, 44 years ago, but we didn't really pursue it. I was still in college. I was you know, I was building my hours for flying to get an airline job and we were quite busy, but it was always in the back of our mind. And more recently we went up there and I had a, a professional stonemason help me measure. And he goes, wow, <laughs> you know, well, this measurement, 83 centimeters or 3264 is found in sites in Peru, some other places in South America. It's found in Mexico, like a Tihuacan and some of the Southern mounds. So the LIDAR might help to establish, and it'll be kind of objective, I think, you know, not subjective, like, well, you're measuring it wrong and all of this. Right. I think what we call the sum, standard unit measure, we might be able to use that as evidence if it is like a megalithic yard. I mean, people will disagree and agree. We're going to have arguments no matter what. But I, my son's an engineer and he helped me because, you know, it isn't, this was not built using inches or feet or yards or, or old rods, the old English rods. Mm-hmm. 
That's interesting. Um, Weird Realities wanted to know, um, are there any petroglyphs at your site? Yeah, they were started finding these back in 1930. It's actually what in the Oracle Chamber. The Oracle Chamber is shaped like the letter T, if you look down at it, like a plan view almost. And it has five closets. It has a bed. It has a chimney with two stone louvers that the two louvers are stolen the year we opened up. We have photographs of them. It has a big bench seat uh, opposite one of the beautiful closets where they did one of the optically stimulated luminescence testing, actually in the closet wall. So, But um, Goodwin actually noticed a carving, and he called it the deer carving. If you look at it, it's not a deer. It doesn't have deer antlers. And over the years in the 60s, we even put down maybe an ibex. An ibex is a Western European animal. And more recently, uh, I, since I retired, I started looking at that a little bit closer in line, and I found that the Iberian ibex looks like this animal. There's other ibexes, too, with different antler shapes and stuff. It looks like it. And according to the inscriptions that we have found starting in the 1960s, um, very controversial, of course, Dr. Barry Fell from Harvard University. He was an epigrapher and an invertebrate um, uh, marine zoologist. He came from uh, New Zealand, went to school in Scotland, and then he came and worked at Harvard University. His passion was ancient languages and ancient script. And he could speak, I think, seven modern languages, and he could read about 15 ancient scripts, you know, Minoan, Linnea, A and B, Egyptian hieroglyphics, Celtic, Oum or Ogum, uh, Libyan, uh, Phoenician, and some other scripts too. But he, what he identified that were found before he ever arrived at our site that were in our museum on display were um, Phoenician, Libyan, and Celtic, according to him. And these type of script have been found from Maine, um, Manana Island up near Monhegan Island in Maine, which we vacationed last year, all the way down to Brazil and all the way out to the West Coast. So our site is, again, not unique in that way, but these scripts should not be here, these old world scripts. And inside the... Um, Chamber in ruins, we found three different inscriptions. This structure has a about a four-ton roof slab that collapsed in on it on the structure. We got three radiocarbon datings from that structure, and we got three inscriptions from that structure. It has two windows and it has a doorway that you walk in and the thousand-pound lintel stone too. And that came crashing down at some time in the past and the roof fell on top of it. And that structure again has a trapezoid shape. But they found the inscriptions back in the 60s and 70s. And when Barry Fell came in 1975, he spent time, uh, he took some of them back to Arlington, Massachusetts at his home. And he actually identified them as those three types, Libyan, Celtic, and Phoenician. And so we have those type of petroglyphs. But again, Vermont has the highest number up in Vermont. It has chambers, astronomically aligned alignments up there, but it has the most inscriptions up there, up, up in Woodstock, Royalton, Putney, Pulteney, Vermont. Last summer, we went up to Woodstock and we looked at one of the chambers. You know, I hadn't been there in like 30 years to see, oh, mm -hmm. over, over 35 years to see that particular structure. So, um, but they're in Canada too, these inscriptions. So either there's a lot of people out there playing hoaxes across the Americas, North, Central, and South America. And some of these stones were found, you know, back in the 1800s. Some were found uh, as, as early as um, back into the 1600s before some of these like Phoenician or Libyan or whatever word translated. So how would somebody before translation know how to write something in those ancient scripts going back hundreds yeah. of years ago, except the original, you know, people that wrote it, you know? Absolutely. So we have at our site, Libyan, Phoenician, according, he said they came out of this, out of the Iberian Peninsula. So the Phoenicians were from the, uh, from the uh, Phoenician coast, you know, they were in uh, Syria, Jordan, uh, Israel, the Golan Heights, um, and they set up 50 trading cities across the Mediterranean, including Carthage. And then Hanno took 30,000 
pilgrims and they moved around uh, outside the gates of Her- Hercules, Rock of Gibraltar. I've been by there back, we went there one time and they went around in Africa and set up seven more colonies. And the thought is they came across the Atlantic Ocean. So uh, the Phoenicians, although they came out of the Middle East, they were sitting, they were also in um, places like Copco Nova was a Spanish Phoenician city. Um, and uh, Gades was another one on the Southwest coast. I was right in that area too. when I took a field trip there. But um, the Celts came into Spain and the Libyans did too. So he said it was a melting pot in Spain and they launched from there like Columbus did to the New World, you know, going back well well before Columbus, you know, 1500 years before Columbus. And that, of course, we have that Iberian ibex in our cave. It looks like that. It kind of fits. Again, it's not conclusive evidence. And again, there'll be a lot of debate about that. But the ibex seems to fit the area where these people supposedly came from, Spain and Portugal, that area there. Right. And Spain has some of the most beautiful megalithic sites. If you ever Google them, they're incredible. Uh, and Portugal, too. And uh, that's one of my destinations, uh, possibly this year. I've been invited to go to uh, the Canary Islands and then you know, hop up. This. I've been to Spain before, but go up there and port- I've never been to Portugal and see some of the megalithic sites there. And it's supposed to resemble some of ours. Uh, some of our researchers from the 1960s and 70s, they were open and they said, this looks like America's Stonehenge. So I haven't seen it in person. So. Right. That's one of my destinations. We actually had someone in the chat mention the Canary Islands. Um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So that's that's where we were. There's a gentleman from Malibu, California. He's an author, writer, travel, and he invited me to go with him over there. And I, you know, um, awesome. So I may take him up on that offer. It depends on COVID-19, you know, and all of that. But right. I, he wants me to go with him. And he does some beautiful filming, too, you know. He makes mm-hmm. videos. His last, he did like seven videos. The last two were about our site and some of the mounds out west using, you know, and he also did a couple states over in Portugal as a comparison. Mm-hmm. So that's um, awesome. I hope you get to go. I hope you get to go. That'd be cool. Yeah. That's that's <laughs> yeah, definitely. You know, they, in, in America, most people don't know, he had a, possibly a million mounds, ancient mounds. So when you go listen to the schools, you know, from, you know, elementary school through high school, maybe even to college, you may never hear about the mounds out west, unless you live there. Mm-hmm. You heard of the spiral mounds in your state, yeah. but if you don't We're live there, you probably never there. heard of them. I didn't know there was a mound out west when I was a kid. It may have been a million of them from Ohio, which had over 10,000. Indiana had maybe 5,000. They go right out to the Rio Grande. And then because you go on the other side of the Rio Grande, Mexico has over 100,000 temple sites, which are amazing. But these go right into Canada too. There are pyramids and different types of pyramids. There are even uh, ones that are kind of conical shaped, which were usually the burial mounds. And um, ridge top, flat top. And then, of course, there's the effigy mounds too, serpent shape. Mm-hmm. You know? And there's one shaped like alligators and there's others shaped like bears. And uh, the right in Iowa has quite a few of them, too. And I used to overnight in Iowa and uh, up in Wisconsin, too. It's just a shame at school they don't teach that we had these ancient. I mean, we have pyramids made out of earth in the United States. And they like the uh, Cahokia Mound Complex west of uh, St. Louis. And it covered 4,300 acres, 120 pyramids. And Mont's Mound, back on the Harmonic Convergence in 1987, we had a thousand people show up suddenly at our site for that big event. And we didn't expect them. But out Jasper, thousands of people went there for meditation and everything. And um, we even had T-shirts made up for that, actually. Uh, somebody made them up. They had heard people were coming to our place. CNN showed up and all the Boston stations like, what the heck is this? What are these people coming to our site? But if you go to Cahokia in 1987, on top of Mont- Mont- and I've been there, the top is so huge on that pyramid that 4,000 people easily uh, were accommodated up there for that event. It's gigantic. It's, it's amazing. And if you're familiar with the NASCAR lines down in Peru, the, the desert drawings, those beautiful artwork, 
If you go to um, Blythe, California, there are over 300. Some of these things are bigger than football fields in their artwork. But in schools, they're not talking about our sites in the Northeast. Uh, some teachers may, but they're not in the textbooks. And then the, a million mounds, how do you ignore that? And you can go right. see them. Some are gone right. today. Or, you know, even the uh, geoglyphs, like the ones I right. mentioned in Blythe, California. Fantastic ancient things you can see in this country that people mm -hmm. don't know exist. You know? They're still kind of interesting. Yeah, yeah, a lot there, really. I yeah, I, I uh, discussed that a little bit with Mary Joyce as well. You know, she talks a lot about ancient civilizations, uh, ruins in our country that none of us even know about because we don't, history doesn't cover that. Our history classes don't cover that. It's It seems like our history classes are geared more towards politics is yeah, what it seems yeah. like to me. It leaves out a lot of ancient civilization um, history that we really, sh I feel like we should know. We, we learn from all history, not just what humans you know, in the past 300 years have done prior to that, you know? Yeah, you're right. If you put the political filter on with history, you probably end up with nothing coming out the other side, you know? <laughs> we talk, we're talking about that today, too. You know, it's really sad. Everything's political today, you know? You know, on one side or the other. Well, we just, we love the astronomy, the archaeology, the mm -hmm. history, the prehistory, talking about Native Americans, possible old world visitors coming over before Columbus and before the Vikings, you know? Mm -hmm. I mean, that's our interest. We don't want to make it political law. We're just basically looking at the evidence and see where it takes us, you know? And some of the evidence suggests old world visitation to the new world. And I mean, one woman said I was being um, disrespectful to Native Americans. And I'm like, well, I, I, for one thing, I have Native American on my mom's side, number one, you know, my son was mm -hmm. born with a blue dot. Mongolian spot, but number two, um, no, I mean, the Native Americans could have been involved with these sites, but we did have a Native American on the latest, um, it was on a travel channel show that was just on uh, two days ago, and uh, the Native American from Massachusetts, and he's been to our place a couple times, he became a friend of mine, and, um, but his response, he has Orkney Island blood in him too, and he did a DNA thing, but he has Native American, and when he went up on our site, he said he almost felt like he was going to have a heart attack. He said, and he said, it was on the TV show, he said, basically, this wasn't our people that built this, because this is not us. He goes, this is not in our tradition. We did other things, but this is not our kind of place. He goes, the place is incredible, but he goes, it's not us. And it gave me the worst. He says, I had to sit down. I thought I was going to die up there. And that's on the show, you know? Yeah, so, that's fascinating. Yeah. That's fascinating. That's just, um, yeah. Yeah, that is interesting. So I, I did want to get back to the mounds real quick. We had discussed mounds before we started the show. Um, and Jamie King actually has a great question. Um, do the mound builders and the stone builders have a relation? Because he's from Ohio and Pennsylvania. Yeah. They have a lot of mounds there, you know. Wow, that's a great question. Um, I know even Dr. David Stewart-Smith mentioned the Hopewell Adena, you know, and the Mississippian cultures. And some of that, some of that, um, uh, coming into the Northeast, not only into New York, but maybe into, there are a few sites in Maine and it's not on the top of my, I can't think of it. There's a site up in Maine and they believe there is um, possibly, I think, a Dina influence up there. And that's usually the Ohio Valley, you know, area, the greater Ohio Valley with the Adena and because of Hopewell. Um, and um, one of my friends, he lives down in New Jersey and he's flying corporate. He had to retire, he had to retire at the airlines at 65, but he flew with me in America. He uh, remembers back in the early 90s seeing a earthen um, serpent just north of Philadelphia. And I've never heard of that. And he said he saw his co-pilot star and everybody looked down at it. He's trying to relocate. He's trying to locate it again. He gave me yeah. a GPS because that might show a little bit more of that eastern movement of the mound builders. And they did come up to New York. There are a few simple mounds in New Hampshire 
And up in Maine, there is a site that they believe might be influenced by the Adena. So that's a great question because it's a serpent walls. Basically, you build out of the material at hand. If you have earth, you build earth. If you have stone, you build stone. I think the Great Serpent Mound actually has a stone foundation under it, too. And it was partly a natural shape, something to do with the, the crater and everything. And it was pointing towards the summer solstice to sunset, which could be kind of coincidental, that general direction. But they modified the whole thing into a serpent with a coil tail and an egg in the mouth of the serpent, which is so cool. But it is aligned with the equinoxes and solstices, um, as many, many of these are. And I used to fly into Columbus, Ohio all the time, right by Newark. And some of the greatest earthworks right there just east of um, Columbus, Ohio. And one of my co-pilots, she was from France originally, and she uh, lived in that town and she commuted to, uh, I guess at that time, Boston was our base. And I said, do you know what's in your town? She goes, uh, well, it's, uh, it's a town. I said, well, there's a golf course. She goes, oh, yeah, the golf course. I said, in that golf course, there's some of the best and, and amazing mounds anywhere in, in the world, right? In that, in, and they built a golf course over it. I guess it was better than a, you know, like a, a shopping plaza, which would have right. destroyed it. So they... In that way, it was good, you know, but it, Ohio's so big, it's too bad they didn't put the golf course just a little further down the road. Uh, that is connected by, a, I think it's a 65-mile ancient road, and you can see it with satellite, I guess, and it's wide enough for 18 wheels to pass by. It was curved, 65 miles, this flat road made out of earth. It goes to Chillicothe, and the same kind of earthworks are down there, too, 65 miles away. So Ohio has some really cool... And our first researcher, actually, William Goodwin of Hartford, actually lived there for 15 years. He had been he had been in Seattle, Washington. He had been in San Francisco. And then he moved to uh, uh, Ohio and lived in Columbus. And he was a special insurance. His family were part of the J.P. Morgan family. His first cousin was J.P. Morgan. But he was kind of the guy that was interested in ancient stuff. Now, he was, right. you know, in business, too. But his passion was ancient sites, Vikings, Native Americans. He was involved with looking at the mounds in Ohio, some of the 10,000. Over 120 years ago, he lived there about 15 years. He would go out and map them for the state highway department back in the early part of the last century. And then he moved back to Hartford, and that's when he bought our site and got involved okay. with the rocks, <laughs> you know, all these stones up there. But um, so, yeah, Goodwin, um, he has his critics, but he did save the site. Other people might have put homes on top of the site and just totally destroyed it. He thought Irish called the monks built the site a 1,000 years ago. I mean, if you go back 80 years ago, you know, carbon dating wasn't around, and a lot of the new techniques we use – and so um, I guess there was more room for speculation, you know, with the evidence that they had. Initially, he thought it was a Viking site when he first saw our site. So he bought 20 acres. Today we have 110. And he put a chain link fence up that's still there 83 years later to protect the site. That chain link fence was put up before World War II. He died in 1950. He willed it to Malcolm Pearson. And Malcolm Pearson died about 10 years ago at 99 years old. And he's the guy that my dad bought the property from. And um, so, but the mounds are something we're fascinated about. You know, I mean, and did that influence come into this area? You don't have as much earth. You have a lot of rock. It's And David Stewart Smith was one back, I think he was talking about this back in the either the 80s or 90s. He was talking about the Adena influence coming into the Northeast. So mm-hmm. I don't know if I answered the question, but we are looking at that too, you know. Yeah, I know. I think you did. And I think it's it's fascinating how you answered that question. It, they kind of melded, really. So seems like good. Yeah. It seems, it seems like, like they it. do have a relation. They melded yeah. the two together using what they had. Yeah. Um, all right, last question, and this is a good one also. Oh. Weird Realities would like to know what is the most intriguing find that you have personally made at your site? Um, 
Yeah, not to beat this too much, but I think when I retired in 2016, you know, a lot of my friends said, what are you going to do? Well, they knew I had the museum and they said, well, that might keep you busy. But I didn't know we'd be finding so many things. And I think the serpent walls are the thing, you know. Um, I think there was a gentleman that just retired from um, uh, the department of, I believe it's historic places. And, you know, a lot of sites have designated that. And he was out of Washington across the country. And the other one was a UNESCO World Heritage Sites too, you know, United Nations. So he retired from that. And I understand he's working with that group, New England Antiquities Research Association. And his interest is the serpent walls. And I brought this up a couple of years ago. I said, you can't really mistake a serpent wall for a farmer's wall. Farmer's wall have a whole different flavor, you know. Mm -hmm. And um, then after that, we started finding these serpent walls are right across the nation, you know, into Canada too. So he wants to, um, I guess, kind of record all these serpent walls. He wants photographs, maybe survey them, maybe LIDAR them. And he wants to um, possibly get some sort of recognition for them. And it may be a back way or a back door to get these stone structures recognized too, because they've been called root cellars and all sorts of farmers kind of structures. Um, but when you look at the walls and they undulate, they have a head, you know, and they just, they don't function as a wall at all. You know, mm-hmm. um, I, I don't think you can mistake a serpent wall for any farmer's wall whatsoever. So I think they're going to be working on that project from here to California, uh, from Canada down to the Rio Grande, perhaps, you know, because Ontario, Canada has them. And if you watched, Oak Island, which I really haven't watched too much lately because if you miss a few episodes, you know, it's, you know, but, uh, but around Christmas time, a friend from high school sent me a note saying, Hey, they found a uh, stone serpent wall. I'm like, what? Cause I hadn't watched the show, you know, for a while. And then I was on a radio show about a month and a half ago and the host brought it up and I said, well, now I got to look at that episode. And sure enough, I checked the episode out. It came around Christmas and um, it is, it looks like a serpent wall up in uh, Oak Island in Nova Scotia. You know, I used to do a lot of overnights in Halifax and, but I never, you know, unfortunately never went down there to even look at that place, you know. But yeah, they might have one right up there too, a serpent wall up there. Yes. I really thought you were going to say the speaking tube because the speaking tube to me was like an intriguing find that. Well, that's cool. Yeah, that was found by Goodwin and actually it had two stone block of blocking the uh, both sides of that. And one of his work team, when they cleared a couple feet of dirt underneath the table, because very slowly earth covers these structures up. It's a... Mm-hmm. Uh, it's like pediogenesis depletion of soil. It comes from windblown particles and vegetation decay. And in New England, it's about 100 to 125 years for an inch. But on a hill, we have the, the erosion, you know, washing effect. So we do have, you know, in some areas, a couple feet of dirt. In other areas, the bedrock is still exposed. It depends where you are on, this, on the hilltop. But the table is almost completely buried because stuff just settles in there, you know. Right. And when they dug down, they were surprised to see the table sitting on four legs. And then somebody moved the rock underneath the uh, table with the wall of the oracle chambers. And it was loose. And then pulled it out. And it's like, oh, my God, there's a hole back there, a horizontal hole. And they could see it went in there a ways. And they, went, and they decided to go into the oracle chamber later. And they pulled the other rock out. It's like somebody can conceal this, this tube that you can actually talk through. And inside the oracle chamber, there's actually a bedrock step. So they quarried some of the stone but left this raised part of the bedrock. Somebody about five and a half feet tall standing there and speak right into the tube. And the end of the tube under the table is flared, like a, uh, maybe like a trumpet or a musical instrument. Right. It makes it like a megaphone. And it was designed acoustically, we think. But they wanted to conceal it. I'm wondering if they did that, like they closed it up in case somebody who wasn't supposed to know about the Oracle Chamber or the Oracle Tube came by, they wouldn't see it, you know, like the Wizard of Oz kind of thing, you know. That's one of our thoughts. Unfortunately, Mr. Goodwin, 80-something years ago, when they pulled the stones out, they probably just set them aside. They didn't save them and say, this is, you know, this is, you know, Exhibit A and B. This was, you know what I mean? They should have, but they... Maybe they attempted to, but they're gone today. We don't know where those two blocks of stone are. 
Fortunately, Mr. Uh, Malcolm Pearson was a professional photographer, so he photographed the site before they did anything. And we have hundreds of his pictures, and we have photographs back to 1920. I heard one of the magazines did a story on us recently and said, we have no idea what Mr. Goodwin did there. Well, we do. We have four pictures from 1920 of different parts of the site. We also have 1935 pictures of a Reverend Ward, and it was a Havel Gazette, which is a town in Massachusetts about 10 miles away from us. And they did a couple of different stories with pictures of our site. And then when Melton came in 36, the year before Goodwin touched it or bought it, he was photographing the site. And so, yeah, we kind of know what Goodwin did up there, you know? Yeah. So those, those, those people, they just run with something that they hear from somebody else and say, well, yeah, we don't know what Goodwin, he could have built the whole thing. Well, no, you know, in Moscow Whitney no. set up a plane table and did profile plan view and cross sessions of the site you know, mapping everything. And then he meant those comments about the standard unit of measure, you know, mm-hmm. but um, so we know what it looked like before Goodwin, you know, and we know that's amazing. Like. I mean, you that lost the, the actual stones, but I think it's amazing that you had at least had, you know, photographs of it to see how it yeah. was placed before it was removed. That's, recorded, I think yeah. that the speaking tube to me is the most fascinating like find that just, <laughs> I mean, that just, you know, because you think of, people building this and you know you've made a few uh, Fred Flintstone references and so this just speaks to a higher intelligence you know besides the um, trapezoid rooms that are not quite you know up to today's specs for building but that just speaks to a higher intelligence to me. Yeah and I've been to uh, Delphi in Greece that was different the Oracle Delphi that was a little different you know and that gas is coming out of the uh, rock and everything influencing their behavior and what they but I've been to um to Malta below Sicily and we spent quite a bit of time there and uh, there were holes in some of the big vertical stones or orthostats and I asked one of the guides what are those what was the purpose of that and I had an idea what it was but you know let him explain it he goes that's where somebody would actually talk through that hole and it was like an oracle giving uh, people either commands or inspiration or mm-hmm. maybe some future, you know, you know like right. about the future. But I said, gosh, that reminds me so much of our of our Oracle tube, you know. Um, I don't know how the thing would function for a farm, but the table is not a lye stone for making soap. That's another comment. Lye stones are about 36 to 40 inches in diameter. They have a very shallow round hole collecting the – you put a barrel on top of rock, ashes, pour water in there. And you collect the fluid, mix it with animal fat, and make soap. So it's a right. soap-making stone. And you can pick one up, you know, most maybe one or two people. Our stone is 9,000 pounds. It's shaped like a bell, kind of a bell shape, a big trapezoid-shaped uh, groove, which is very deep and very wide. And where, where the runnel is, where it runs off the front in the bedrock, somebody actually, and you don't see any tool marks, you actually notched out the bedrock so that it would either drip into the notch or you could put some sort of a gourd or maybe ceramic base in there to collect it, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, it's not a cider press either. You can't get a horse and a wagon down there to bring the apples. I, when I take the leaves out of there every fall, I have a small, I have three different ATVs, including a very small one, and I have to pocket about 20 feet away and carry all the leaves out. There's no way you'd get a horse in there with a wagon to bring in the apples, squish everything, take out the pulp and the product, you know, because some people claim, oh, that's like just a cider mill. You know, it's like, mm-hmm. that, it wouldn't work for that. And there's no archaeological record of that and no archaeological evidence of that either, or a limestone either, you know. So that's what some people call the sacrificial table. And then what are you going to do with the oracle too? How does that function right. with the with a, with a limestone or the, you know, the cider, the cider mill? I, I, I have no idea. So uh, I think it's probably a, probably a city manager down there giving instructions from his office. 
Yeah, it could have been, yeah, yelling at shouting out, you know, what they needed and how, how much, uh, you know, bring in some more apples, you know, and we're running right. short, and, uh, you know. But the Oracle Chamber is really cool. You'll like that, too. And it is attached to the um, – that's where the Oracle Tube is. But it has so many features, including underground drains, two underground drains there, the two carvings, and it has five closets. And then the chimney foo had the two stone louvers and a stone that would actually slide in a groove over the top to, to block it. Um and we don't know what the chimney flue is because it doesn't seem like the rocks are really heated because when you really fire rocks, they get thermal stresses and cracks. They also, sometimes you'll see the iron gets drawn out of the rocks. They turn reddish. Um, but there's definitely a way you can tell that it's been heated. And even because um, soot might not last thousands of years, you know, charcoal. But it doesn't look like they, maybe they just sent smoke signals too. Like, you know, in the Vatican when the Pope, when they bring in the new Pope and they right. raise smoke, you know, maybe something like that was happening during a ceremony or maybe a little... Look for smoke with it. I don't know, you know. Yeah. It's there. We thought often that might be uh, astronomically aligned with the heavens because a lot of the ones down in Mexico are aligned with the zenith. You look at the stars as they passed overhead or a certain object, maybe a planet. And I had a gentleman from Harvard University over 20 years ago, really great guy. And he he just passed away recently, but um, he was he worked he was a professor at Harvard, and we would go there around 1999, 1998, and he worked with my dad quite a bit because I was on the road flying a lot, but we were looking at some of the stars and then he would go back and look how the heavens look because the earth's tilt is a 41,000 year obligatory cycle and the precession of the equinox, it does change the heavens a little bit. So he kind of went back in time to see, and that's how we dated the astronomical alignments because the earth's tilt, but what did it look like 4,000 years ago? It might've, you know, it would be different alignments up there, you know, a little that's bit true. different. That is a good point. That's all a these things you have to consider. Yeah. 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 You have to consider all that stuff, you know? You do. I mean, yeah, yeah. you can't just look at it from today's point of view. Exactly. Uh, literally from today's, literally. you know, you can't do that. That's because if, uh, that's if you watch the astronomical, like the solstices, they'll, they'll actually miss their mark by about your thumb and your little finger. It's about 40 minutes due to the earth's tilt, you know, guy named, um, oh, what was his name? He's from England. Um, forget the guy's name. He's very famous over there, but he said over about a hundred years ago, yeah, these alignments over here for the solstice, the equinox is still on, but the solstices and anything close to the cross quarter days and lunar will be off a little bit. He goes, there's something going on here. If we could figure out back in time when they align, we could actually date the site. And that was pretty cool. That guy was already onto that. Sir Norman Lockyer was his name. And he's, mm-hmm. some people consider him like the grandfather of rocky astronomy. And Dr. Alexander Tom from Scotland was the father. We met him. He died in 85, but we met Dr. Ock. Um, Alexander Tom in Scotland, we had supper with him. It was Thanksgiving over here and they gave us turkey. They didn't even know that. It was like really cool. But he was um, he had a he were, he was a professor out of Glasgow and he had a seat at Oxford University. He was an engineer, just like my dad. He was an engineer. Mm-hmm. And he found the megalithic yard, the megalithic rod. He was looking at uh, the way these circles, particularly in Scotland, were set up and using Pythagorean isosceles and equilateral triangles. So geometry to build these, some of these 800 stone circles. So some are perfectly circular. Some are kind of uh, elliptical shapes. So you might have like one foci for a circle, two foci for an ellipse. You would attach ropes to these holes you stuck in the ground. But for the egg shape and pear shaped ones, and these things repeat themselves across the landscape, people are going, look at those old people. They couldn't build a perfect circle for the life of them, except maybe a couple, you know? And there's a couple of ellipses too. What he found is they were intentional and they were actually using the three, four, five and the equilateral isosceles triangles to build these pear shaped and egg shaped. And he labels them and classifies them all. And these are big, big stone circles. And they're actually aligned with the moon, too. So he was into the astronomy. He was into the mathematics of it. 
and he was an incredible surveyor, and his son, Dr. Archibald Tom, too. He died in 1995, 10 years after his dad. We met both of them, and they were very interested in what we were doing over here because some of the mounds out west are astronomically aligned. They were into that, too. The grandson, I understand, is over in Scotland, is carrying out the work. But uh, really, really cool people we get to meet over the years, you know, like that. No, and, and all the places that you've been, um, all the research you've done, you know, you've really contributed a lot just through your own site. But then, you know, yeah. um, just everything else. So, I mean, I think that's amazing. And uh, this has been a very enlightening interview. Um, well, thank you so much. Yeah. <laughs> well, I you know, I learned... I learned so much from my guests. Um, every guest I've ever had on, I've learned something from them. Um, but this was a little bit outside my wheelhouse. Um, but I, I mean, it's, it, it's just been a fascinating interview. I don't even have any words. Like, it's just, <laughs> thank you so much for coming on. Thank you so much for explaining everything and, and answering my questions from my chat. You know, um, I, I can't wait to have you back on um, with those results, hopefully, and yeah. anything else that you have going on. I feel like we could definitely do a two-part show here. <laughs> yeah, we might hear something this week, and I'll go back to you. Great questions from you, from your listeners. Uh, I really appreciate the questions. They were really good, and and um, it helped us learn too. You know, think outside yeah. the box. You know, things we may have not ever you know thought about before. You know, so yeah, mm -hmm. really great questions and great questions from you too. And really, really enjoyed that. But this week, you might hear back from me. I'll send you a message if okay. we hear anything. It could get messed up. You know, maybe it'll be two weeks, but they say this week we might hear. So that's amazing. Well, I, I sure hope you get your results and um, <laughs> yeah. I hope you get to go overseas. I hope you get to go yeah. take a trip, you know? Yeah, I get the American Airlines flight benefit retirement. So and I've only used right. it four times in four years. Isn't that awful? It's a lifetime oh, yeah. thing for being there for, you know, 27 years. And it's like you didn't get, I've never been to South America and they're big down there. You know? I, it's a little point for my airline, but I love my airline. But uh, now I got to get back on the road like everybody. You know, I have so many friends that have just not taken trips in the last year. Maria was supposed to be over here about four times. She had another friend that was supposed to uh, go to Scotland and she had to mm -hmm. cancel that reason. It's just everybody. It's like, it's not, you know, it's everybody. Like that. Yeah, it's COVID. I was <laughs> going to say you have no excuse, but it's COVID. It, it, yeah, we'll wait so. a little bit longer until it's safer. And then I tell my wife, I'm going right. to go. I want to do a trip from uh, Edward, Georgia, where the mountains are, right down to Poverty Point and do like across the Southern. And there's yes. so much down there to see. And that's been canceled twice last year on us too. You know? so yeah. That's one of my, one of my to do. <laughs> oh, I hear you. I have a bucket list a mile long and it wasn't that long until COVID hit. Now it's just no. like, you know, it's um, longer and longer. <laughs> it is all no. the things that I want to do. So thank you again for coming on tonight. So I, I mean, fun. you have been a fantastic guest and um, you. you guys go check out his website. Like he said, he has Facebook and Instagram. You guys can keep up with everything he's doing there. Um, again, we're going to have him back on to talk later on. And uh, if y'all have any questions, y'all can reach out in the ways that he said. So thank you again for coming on tonight, Dennis. And, thank you very much. Uh, all right. And I will thank holler you. at you later. <laughs> okay. Thanks. Bye now. Thank you. Okay. I just wanted to touch on some stuff real quick, everybody. Uh, thank you for tuning into the show and I hope you enjoyed it. It was a little bit outside of my wheelhouse, but I learned a lot. I really enjoyed everything that Dennis had to talk about. Um, he even brought in some Bigfoot related content just for you guys. And um, you guys don't forget to drop a comment down below with what you thought, like, and subscribe, of course. And I wanted to give a special shout out to the affiliates of Nightcaller's Bigfoot Radio. 
go check out their websites and give them a listen and a like. Don't forget to subscribe. These are great shows that um, have become part of my affiliate program. So they're supporting me, supporting them, supporting me, supporting them. So we have Bigfoot Society Podcast, Bipolar Teddy Bear Network, Bigfoot Crossroads, Weird Realities, uh, Beaver Hook Productions, and Bigfoot Club. So if you are interested in becoming an NCBR affiliate, check out my website, nightcallersproductions.com, and see what it's all about. And I am going to play a slide. If it'll play, I'm having problems with it here lately, but tonight my stream has not wanted to work for me. But we'll see if it'll play again. You guys go check out my affiliate webs or shows. You know, they all have great content. They all have varied content. And it's definitely worth checking out. I appreciate you guys again for coming tonight. You know, every time you guys come and you join in the chat and you offer up your questions and you're here to just chat and learn, that means the world to me and how respectful you are of my guest. I can't thank you guys enough. So uh, thank you again for coming. And I have a members only interview with William J. Sheehan this next week. So if you're a member through Buy Me a Coffee, you can have access to that interview. And also I have my extra, extra night terrors coming out this week as well. So I encourage you to go check out my website, check out my affiliate program and my Buy Me a Coffee um, thing as well. My membership, I'm sorry. And uh, the Falk outing is this week. So if you can make it, we sure hope to see you. You guys have a great night and I'll see you.